You are going to want to follow thought leaders in the industry. That's probably the best way to learn is to learn from other people who do it, who are in it, who study it, who understand it. That information is going to move faster than, say, taking a formal education course at an institution because you've got real people hands-on in the market right now who know how decisions are being made. Find someone you trust who's doing it, who has information that you can learn from in real time. Everybody want to get the bag. But y'all really know what it's gonna take Trying to figure out how to start now Blue chills, gotta show you the way Cause we're top finders and amortizing And anything it takes to get real estate We've been grinding all day Finding ways to get paid Better hop on this wave Cause we're dropping blue gems JB dropping blue gems AG dropping blue gems New podcast, baby, tune in we in this thing dropping blue gems. Let's go. Another episode of Blue Gems podcast with Bridget Bricks. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Thank you so much for being here. And yeah, let's get started. I'm Bridget Brick. I lend on investment properties, namely long-term rentals and short-term rentals up to 20 units. And I'm excited to reframe the way you think about money today. Ooh, well, let's dive into it. What do you mean by reframing the way we think about money? A lot of times people will be moved by the talk in the market, especially talk on the news about what to think about money and about what to do with money and especially about what not to do with money. So popular theme right now is the interest rates are too high. You shouldn't take out any loans right now. And that is a way of thinking about money in terms of checkers. You're looking right at the move in front of you, right? I want to reframe the mindset to think about money in terms of chess moves. So yeah, you've got a move in front of you that's maybe not desirable. But if you're thinking two or three moves ahead, this can come out to your favor in terms of hundreds of thousands of dollars in the long run. I know that we uh, we talked offline before we got here and, and there was a bunch of uh, trigger points that you wanted to tackle. Let's hop into some of those. They were great points. And uh, yeah, I want to dig into that. One of the ways to reframe the way you think about money is to know exactly what is going on with money and in the market. And so it can be boiled down to a very simple framework. Because if you have this framework and you lay this structure over what's happening in the market, then you will always be able to understand what's next and what money moves to make. So for example, let's go back to 2020. In 2020, the home values were low and money was cheap to borrow. And so trigger point number one, the most desirable position to be in is when home values are low and money is cheap to borrow. So this is stage number one. Now, because money is cheap to borrow, it's easier to get a loan. It's easier to qualify and more people want to get the loan. So as you have more people clamoring to get loans and more people going after purchasing properties in the market, it drives the price up because some people start to offer 1000 over asking, 5000 10000 10% over asking, 20 And so slowly the next trigger point is home values are high and money is still cheap to borrow. But as home values become higher, eventually what you have in the market is something called inflation. And that's what we're experiencing right now. And so when inflation happens, then the interest rates go up. That's a, a lever that the Fed pulls. And so interest rates... Now we're at trigger point number two, home values are high, money is expensive to borrow. And so this is an undesirable position to be in when you're trying to purchase because you have high values and you have high rates. And so everything about it is expensive. Now, as you have high rates, less and less people are interested in borrowing money, less and less people can qualify because the point of raising the rate is to slow the spending down in the economy. And that is meant to slow down the inflation rate, right? So you have less and less people trying to get loans. And so we're starting to experience trigger point number three, where 
home values will soften. And to what degree, that's hard to predict. But home values will not continue to stay at 20% over asking like they have been in 2021. We had this buying frenzy, right? So the, that trigger point happened about March of this year where the, the rates shot up. And so now we're experiencing trigger point number three, where the home values are softening. And you will see this in the news across the country, depending on what market you're looking into by how much these home values are softening. So then you will hit trigger point number four is less and less people buy assets in the industry and inflation's calms, then the rate will come back down. And that is, again, the most desirable position to be in because the values are low and the rates are low. So then as the rates are low, you'll start to see a lot more people qualifying for loans, clamoring to buy properties, and then boom, here we go, right? So it's just this constant lever up and down, up and down. One goes and then the other one, and then one falls and then the other one falls. And so now if you lay this framework over the market, keep in mind, Ray Dalio has a great video on YouTube called How the Economic Machine Works. And he says that short-term debt cycles last on average between five and eight years. The shortest one has been three and the longest one has been 10. These are outliers, but generally five to eight years. So now if you know that these trigger points happen within an eight-year framework, when you see another trigger point, you can predict about how long that trigger point is going to last. So that brings me to the next point, but I'll stop here and let you ask any questions about that before we move on to the next point. So why does all of this matter for an investor, right? You know, JB and myself, we're buying properties. Why do we care about all these points that you're making? Oh, I love that question. Okay. If you now know this framework and you know that it lasts about eight years, five to eight, then you will know when to make decisions with your money, right? So that would lead you to, should I do an equity cash out refinance? So let's say you have a $225,000 loan and you could do an equity cash out refinance right now. Now, the reason why you might consider doing an equity cash out refinance is because you want to get liquid to buy in what's going to be the dip. Because remember, your home values are high, but money's expensive to borrow. So this is where we are right now. You have a lot of equity built up in that home. So if you take that equity out, then when this happens... You can go purchase the dip. You can go purchase the softening, the, the assets who have softened in price. So buying on discount, we can call it. So now you have enough liquidity to go take advantage of the next stage in the market, right? So if you're aware of this. Now, I get a lot of pushback on this. People say, well, I have a low rate. Why in the world would I trade it for a high rate? You know, I just want to hold on to the, the low rate that I have for 30 years. That's a great idea. And I want to expand on that. If you were to get liquid and you have a loan amount of 225000 at 7% and you hold it for 30 years, yes, you're going to be paying about $1,500 a month. That's about $540,000 at the end of 30 years. If you have a $225,000 loan amount and you only pay 4% and you hold that for 30 years, that loan amount is about, I'd say $1,075 a month. The total after 30 years is $385,000. So the difference there, you're paying $152,000 more if you hold a 7% loan for 30 years. Now, your sunk cost, say you were to take the equity cash out refinance at 7% and have the plan to refinance when rates drop. Remember? So at this point in say three years, let's just call it three years when rates drop. Your sunk cost, meaning the amount of interest you will have paid over three years plus the cost to refinance is going to be around $55,000. That's a difference of $97,000. So what you can do is you can go ahead and get liquid at a high rate. You can wait till the rates drop. You can refinance knowing you're going to have a sunk cost of about $55,000, but you got liquid, you were able to buy in the dip and you're still able to save $100,000 over the cost of the 
alone with the strategy of refinancing. And so what you don't want to do is miss the opportunity to buy those assets when they're on discount or they're in the cycle where they are lower than when they're at their highest value. With that, I'll kind of talk about purchase and what that looks like when you're paying high value versus high rate. But I want to stop here and see if there are any questions on that one. Just to recap, where are we at in the cycle right now? So when... Can we expect to see prices start to come down? I will lay over an actual example of our recent history of where we are on the market. In 2020, home values were low and money was cheap to borrow. And then in 2021, when we came out of the pandemic, home values started to rise. So we went from you know ground zero or point number one to point number two. Home values are high, money is cheap to borrow. So that caused a buying frenzy. And eventually that caused inflation to rise to where in 2022, in March, we hit trigger point number three, where interest rates are now high. Money is expensive to borrow. So now it's been about nine months and you're seeing the fourth trigger point. Home values are softening. And so home values will continue to soften probably at least for the next six months, if not for the next 12 is my prediction. Of course, there's no way to know, but this is based on patterning, right? So if you look at patterns, you can predict what is next in the series. If you know that those short-term debt cycles last five to eight years, then we are at this point, right? Where the home values are softening. And so that will take some time. We don't know how long. And then eventually the rates will lower. You know, we're going back to trigger point number one, right? So one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Just to clarify, when we're talking about the cost of money, we're, we're mainly talking about the demand component of buying a home, right? But what about the supply? Because there's a lot of talk in the market about the limited supply of homes. Maybe we've been underbuilt for years. And so that's you know had a direct impact on pricing. So can you talk a bit about the other side of the coin and the supply of homes on the market today? With supply, if there is enough supply, then demand does not reach a point where it drives prices up 15% per year, like we saw in some markets over the last two years. So if there were enough supply, we would be able to handle the prices not rising that high, right? So then what you're going to have is home builders, developers building supply in those markets. So then you could look at supply and say, well, in the next couple of years, maybe there'll be more supply. So the next time demand goes up, remember when we hit trigger point number one, where home values are low and then money is cheap to borrow again, there could be enough supply at that point to where there isn't demand driving purchasing up to where it's 20% over asking or 30% over asking. Supply takes about two to three years to come around. And so if home builders and developers are just now recognizing that this is a problem such that it caused 30% in home value increases, then it's going to take them a couple of years to develop this and have enough supply in the market for everyone out there who does want to purchase a home. Can we talk about different ways to tap into equity of your home? So we've talked about refinancing. Is there any other options that an investor can have to tap into equity? So there are HELOCs, um, home equity lines of credit. That is different from what I do. So I specifically do investment property loans only. I cannot do and I don't do HELOC loans. You'd want to go to probably your local credit union. I think even Quicken Loans does HELOCs. HELOCs are going to be based on though your income. And the difference between the loans that I do and HELOCs are the loans that I do only take three things to qualify. A credit score of over 600. Liquidity. So on the liquidity portion qualification of the loan, you need usually 20% down payment. Right now, you need 25% down payment. And I'll explain why the market has changed, but you're going to need 25% down payment. And also six months of PITIA reserves. 
meaning you have enough to make the payments for six months if something were to happen. And PITIA stands for Principal Interest Tax Insurance and Association Fees. So that's the liquidity portion. And the third component is on the income qualification portion of the loan. We're not looking at a person's income, W-2s, tax returns, or employment. We are specifically and only looking at the income that the property produces. Now, in order to qualify these loans, the market rental income needs to cover the cost of the loan. Meaning, if you were to rent this out for 12 months, what does the standard lease in your area look like? And is that enough money that it would cover the monthly payment? all of it, taxes included. So as you know, we are short-term rental investors. Right. We don't do annual leases. So how would that impact our potential loan product? What's interesting is up until about two months ago, I was able to underwrite based on short-term rental income projections. Now, what that means is we look on AirDNA because that's the gold standard for underwriting short-term rentals. And we see how much AirDNA projections are. And depending on if you're a professional investor, meaning you have other STRs that you've owned for at least a year, or you're not a professional investor, would determine the percentage that we're allowed to use from what AirDNA projects. So if you're a professional, we get to use 100%. AirDNA says you're going to make 100000 We get to underwrite based on that number. If AirDNA says you're going to make 100000 and you're not a professional investor, we could underwrite maybe 70% of that. So we could count 70000 Now, remember that 70000 divided over 12 months has to cover the cost of the loan. And in most cases, it did. That wasn't a problem. The interesting thing is this market, these loans are not considered a paper loans on the NBS market. And when you have not a paper loans or not a plus loans, and they're not underwritten on a person's income and things like that, then they're going to be higher stipulations as to what qualifies. So with the MBS buyers looking at projections in the market and all the news outlets saying that we're in a recession, they are suspecting that people have less disposable income to spend on STRs right now in the short term, maybe the next six, nine months, maybe 12. And so for that reason, they are no longer underwriting based on projections. I see that product coming back sometime next year. It's just not available right now. However, when it does come back, that is the number one component of what people would come to me in order to under write these STR properties. And is that product inherently more expensive due to the fact that it's not a paper? A paper meaning, I assuming, you know, the credit rating of of the uh, the mortgage-backed security? Yes. So these are not considered FHA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans. And because they're not backed by the Fed, securitized, they are about one and a half to 2% higher than conventional rates. And so depending on where we are in the market, you can just look at LIBOR and, you know, detect what one and a half to two percent over conventional rates that you would find online from conventional lenders. Another thing to keep in mind is the reason why somebody would use this loan and the number one advantage is these loans do not show up on your credit report. They don't count against your DTI or your personal borrowing power. So that can be worth it to a lot of people because eventually you hit a point where your income does not qualify you to own another mortgage. And so a conventional lender or a bank will say, you can't afford a fourth mortgage. And so a lot of the real estate investors are at their wits end with, well, what do we do to scale? And my loans allow you to scale because there are no limits to the number of loans you can have or the outstanding debt you can have. So as long as you have the liquidity, meaning you have the down payment and the reserves for each property, you could qualify for 10 loans at once. So these loans allow you to scale your portfolio very quickly, much faster, as long as you close each property in an LLC. So that's how these loans don't show up in your credit report. 
And then you mentioned not being backed by the Fed, right? Not being backed by FHA, Fannie Freddie. So where's the money coming from then? So this money is still coming from hedge funds, retirement. Think of government worker retirement funds. So these hedge funds are buying these loans because it's a high return. It's just, it's a little riskier. And so they're looking for a higher return for their participants. And they're willing to take that risk because these loans don't fall out. There's not a lot of, of foreclosures or there's not a lot of these loans not turning out because they're underwritten based on rents in the market. So let's say worst case scenario, your STR is in a market that doesn't turn out for you or you don't have the right STR strategy and you just can't get it booked. You could, worst case scenario, rent it out to a long-term renter and still make money on it. It's not like this is a mortgage and there's a family living in it and, and all of a sudden you lost your job and you can't pay for it. These are investment property loans. So they are meant for someone to live in the property and be making the mortgage payment. Makes a lot of sense to me. We are thrilled to announce Blue Gems Management. After building out 24 short-term rental properties of our own, we're now helping other investors buy their time back. With over 300 five-star reviews, we really understand the importance of guest experience. If you're interested in making short-term rentals passive, click the link in the show notes below and someone from our team will contact you soon. Now back to the show. If you have time, I would love to walk through the difference between purchasing a property at a low value with a high rate and purchasing a property at a high value with a low rate. Yes. Let's start with defining exactly what that means okay. for our beginner investors. Okay, sure. So say you're looking at a $300,000 property. Say, you know, back at the trigger points, we've hit the trigger point where home values are softening back to normal, but rates are high. So I'm talking about this scenario right now. So say you're talking about a $300,000 property at a 7% rate, and you're going to hold that loan for three years. You're going to be making about a $19.95 a month payment. So after three years, that's about $71,000. So the total cost, say $371,000. So now say you are at this trigger point where home values are high, but money is cheap to borrow. So the same $300,000 home has gone up 20% in value. $360,000 home now. So you're at the, the high peak. You're in the buying frenzy and you've been moved by the market. And the market's like, oh, you've got to buy. Rates are low. Buy, buy, buy. But home values have gone up 20%. So now you're looking at a $360,000 property. And the rates are 4%. You're going to be making about a $1,700 a month payment. That's about $51,000. So over the course of three years, that's about $411,000. So when you bought the property at $300,000, but paid a high rate of 7%, you spent $371,000. Total, if you count the monthly payments for three years plus what you bought it for. But over here, when you were in the buying frenzy and you bought a property that was 20% over value at $360,000, but you got that good rate that everybody says, go out and get that low rate, you really spent $411,000 because you overpaid for the house in the buying frenzy of a low rate. And so if you look at the difference in that, it's about $40,000. You actually paid more when you paid too much for the house in order to lock in that low rate than if you had bought in the, the seasons of the market we're coming up in when the home values soften, but you're at that high rate as long as you have the strategy to refinance once rates drop again, because you're going to save about $100,000 over the, the life of the loan as long as you refinance down to that low rate when it becomes available. And those are the chess moves I'm talking about making is yes, it's undesirable to buy a home at a high rate. As long as you know one to two steps ahead of, okay, I'm going to refinance when those 
rates drop. Then you've made your move. You've gotten liquid. You can buy more assets in the dip and you've lowered your rate when it's time to refi and you've saved $100,000 that way too. So this kind of brings me to the concept of arbitraging money. Let's talk about arbitraging money. Did you know that Adele has a mortgage? Isn't that surprising to know. learn? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> so she has but it makes sense. Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And people are, why in the world would somebody with all that money get a mortgage? Well, she got a normal loan, a conventional loan, FHA, and probably around 5% right now. But she did this thing called arbitraging money. So first I want to paint the picture of what that looks like. For the ladies out there, if you buy a purse and you just have a purse, that is a liability because it's not making you any money. But say you buy a purse and you put it on some website like rentmypurse.com, if that's a thing, and you rent out your purse to other women and they're making payments to you to rent it. Now you've turned your purse into an asset and you're arbitraging the difference between what you paid and what you earn. So same thing if you buy a car and put it on Toro. If you buy a car, it's a liability. But if you buy a car and then you put it somewhere on a, on a site where you can rent the car, then you're making more than what you're paying for it. You're arbitraging that car. Now, if we get to the concept of arbitraging money, think about where we are in the market right now. We are at inflation rates hit 9% some point over the summer. Meaning if you have $100,000 in the bank, it is losing its purchasing power by 9%. Meaning compared to last year, you can only buy $91,000 worth of things instead of $100,000 worth of things. Now with this in mind, imagine you have $100,000 in equity in one of your properties and you leave it there. Remember that money is losing value because of inflation. So that money cannot go as far as it could have last year. So it's losing 9%, right? But if you do an equity cash out refi and you're only paying 7%, then how much are you saving? 2%. So you just arbitraged money by 2%. So you're not losing 9%, you're only losing 2%. Now, if you take that $100,000 and you put it in a growth vehicle, be any growth vehicle of your choice, I prefer real estate. So if you put it in real estate and say real estate gains on average 3% per year across 30 years, well, now it's not 7% that you're losing. It's only 4%. So you can have $100,000 in equity, losing 9% in value per year, or you can have $100,000 in a loan that as long as you put it in a growth vehicle, losing 4% per year. Would you rather lose 5,000 or I'm sorry, would you rather lose 9,000 or 4,000? So that's the concept of arbitraging money. Now, I have a friend in San Diego who's part of a supercar club when I lived there. I don't live in San Diego anymore. And he would do the same thing with Rolexes. He'd buy a $10,000 Rolex and flip it for $12,000. So he's just arbitraging Rolexes. Meanwhile, he gets to wear them for a month and then he gets the next one, right? So he's always arbitraging. So if you think of money in terms of arbitrage and flipping paper with your chess moves of when to purchase, when to do an equity cash out refi, all these different things, then you can understand the concept of arbitraging money. And that's exactly what Adele did. So she took her 5% loan and then she took that money because it's not money all leaving her account at once. It's money that she is able to use as foot soldiers. And she put those foot soldiers somewhere else to grow in a growth portfolio. So that's another thing I want you to think about is every dollar you have is a foot soldier. And if you don't deploy it to work for you, then it could lose value just stagnating and sitting. And so I know there's a popular teacher who teaches pay cash for everything. Leveraging debt is the number one tool that the wealthy use all the time. I would never recommend you pay full cash for a car. Always get a loan, but never recommend you pay full cash for a home. Always get a loan. And that brings me to really the time value of money. But I want to stop here and see if you have any questions before we go on. So I believe that the famous character you're talking about is Dave Ramsey, <laughs> yes. right? 
And so I think one of the arguments Dave Ramsey would have is that every time you're financing a car, a home, you're paying a financing cost. So can you talk a bit about you know some of the expenses associated with actually getting a loan? Sure. So first, I want to paint the picture of the time value of money. And then I'll tell you about the expenses of a loan. The time value of money is what you have in your favor. Say you were to be offered $4 million today or $4.5 million 10 years from now. $4 million today is worth more than $4.5 million 10 years from now because every year there is inflation of about 3 to 4% on average. Yes, this year it's high. In other years, it will be lower, but on average. In 10 years, that same $4.5 million, even though it's half a million more, is only going to be worth $3 million. 650,000, right? So you've actually lost more than what you've got, what you would have gotten if you received money, the full amount in a lump sum. When you think about what interest rate you're paying, yes, you're paying a cost for that money, but you also have inflation that comes into play. And so if you get a 4% loan, but inflation is three, then that money really only costs you 1%. And you haven't deployed all of your foot soldiers' money in one area You've gotten a loan where you're only paying 1% to borrow the money if you cost average out everything. And then you still have the rest of that money liquid that you can put in other growth vehicles and assets. Now, the cost of the loan, the cost of a property loan is going to be title, escrow, insurance, origination fees, any buy-down points, and any third-party fees as well as underwriting. So yeah, there's a cost associated with a loan, like there's a cost associated with doing any business. But if you cost average that out over time, you're still in a better position to take the loan and deploy your foot soldiers into other assets than you are to leave it alone and put all of your money into one property. So say you have $200,000, you're better off putting say 25,000 down or 50,000 down on four properties than you are to buy one $200,000 property. Because now, yes, you have the cost of every one of those loans, but you have four assets working for you that other people are paying for. Other people are paying this mortgage. Other people are contributing to your retirement, right? Because the point of this is to grow wealth. Someone else is paying 100% of the cost of your retirement while living in your home. And then in 30 years, that loan is gone. And now you're sitting on full cash flow and all the equity in the property. I love it. The masterclass <laughs> on time value of money. We've talked a lot about you know, leveraging money, putting your money to earn a higher return. But how does a newer investor learn where to put their money, right? So how do they learn what properties are going to be profitable and, you know, how to underwrite a potential deal? So you are going to want to follow thought leaders in the industry. That's probably the best way to learn is to learn from other people who do it, who are in it, who study it, who understand it. And that information is going to move faster than say taking a, a formal education course at an institution because you've got real people hands-on in the market right now who know how decisions are being made. So that's my number one point is do research. And by research, I mean, find someone you trust who's doing it, who has information that you can learn from in real time. And then the second thing is you're going to want to go to these websites like biggerpockets.com or Mashvisor. And you want to figure out what your outcome is with these properties. Do you want to have the most cash flow? Do you want to grow equity the fastest over time? Do you want to be in an up and coming city that's growing? And you're going to want to put all these pieces together and figure out what is the best strategy for you. So for me, it's 
it's a balance between cash flow and growing equity over time. I'm not so concerned with only cash flow right now because I'm concerned with the longer range, long term strategy. But someone else might not have that luxury. They might want cash flow straight away. So then you're going to want to find markets where cash flow is the most important, where you can get the most bang for your buck, the highest rents right now. And then another thing, you want to sort of look at the job markets in different cities. So what is going on in certain cities? Are they hiring? Is industry moving in? Are they expanding? Are there going to be a lot of renters, new renters moving to that city? So in that case, you can guarantee that you can count on either short-term renters who are coming in for a project or long-term renters who are coming in and they want to maybe use a short-term rental for a month or two until they find where they want to live longer term. You kind of just want to have all these parts and pieces together as you're thinking about what your strategy is. Love it. Mm -hmm. And then what does a day in the life look like for you right now? I've had four other businesses. And the reason why this business is doing so well for me and why I love it so much is for once, compared to all my other businesses, for once, I finally am attached to my why behind what I do. And my why is I really want to help people escape the 9 to 5 matrix from a job that they are not inspired by, from a life that they're not excited about. I want people to wake up happy. My how is I help put people's money to work. And my what is I provide investment property loans. I've never had a why so strong as I do now, which is why my other businesses weren't that exciting to me. So what a day in my life looks like is I wake up in the morning. I like to meditate, journal, breath work, one or two of those modalities. I cook breakfast every morning. So I switch from coffee to mushroom coffee. So I have you know the reishi, chaga, lion's mane in my coffee. And so that's kind of like a brain boost for me. I really relax in into my morning. So I'm, I'm not as forceful with myself as I used to be in my past. And then, of course, I am working with my clients and borrowers one-on-one when we're looking at what loans we're going to use, what puzzle pieces we're going to put together to make things work. And then I'm making sure that's moving forward. And I'm checking in with my processing team to see where we are in terms of closing. Now, we can usually close loans in about 30 days or less. And so really, that's what a day in my life looks like. And then, of course, I have my social media girl hounding me. Can you make videos? Can you get B-roll? Can you do a walking video? Can, can you do a talking video? And so really that's a day in my life. And then I'll do something social at night with my friends or industry events, dinners. I like to cook a lot. Sometimes I paint. So it's just, it's a very much a flow lifestyle. And that has more to do with the spiritual journey I've been on lately and something that matches, I guess, the energy flow of who I am. And this is much more of my lifestyle than also any of my other businesses, which is why I love this so much. Bridget, if you could leave the listeners one last gem. It could be about morning routines, spiritual journeys, life, loans. It could be about anything. What would you want to leave them? The gem I want to leave you with is to think about all of the conditioning you have that you follow that is not going to get you wealthy. For example, banks will tell you, give us your money, invest in one of our low yield bonds. Yet they'll take your money and go turn around and invest in real estate. You can see that JP Morgan Chase is about to put $1.5 billion into single family homes. So when you think about that and you think about all the things you're told to do versus watching what's actually being done and you just cut out that middleman and you become your own bank, so to say, in terms of how you make money. And then you learn how to leverage debt to buy assets. Because remember, debt is bad is what they tell you. If you're using that debt to buy assets, that can be a tool for you. So just think about all the conditioning you have. Think about how that might not be in your best interest to have you become wealthy. And look at what all the wealthy people have done and are actually doing. Amazing. And then uh, where can people find you? On Instagram at Bridget underscore B-R-I-X. 
So it's B-R-I-D-G-E-T underscore B-R-I-X. And my website is trustcapital.com. That's T-R-U-U-S-T capital.com. But I am doing a rebrand at the beginning of the year. So I will redirect that website to my new website when it's ready. Awesome. Bridget, absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, I think the listeners really are going to enjoy this one. A lot, a lot to learn. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, guys. Have a good day. If you're interested in scaling your short-term rental portfolio and networking with like-minded individuals, we host a short-term rental meetup once a month in downtown Orlando. Click our link below in the show notes to register. See you at the next one. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.